Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Matt Levine Migration Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. We have a packed episode today, first with recent Rutgers graduate and videographer, Bruce Arthur Jr. We have a super productive conversation with him. Uh, we chat about his work, his personal experiences, and what it's like to be a black man in America. I hope you all take away uh, something from this conversation because I definitely did. Thank you again, Bruce, for coming on the show, and uh, we hope to have you on again soon. Uh, the second half of the episode, our friend Sandro Frias comes on in this new segment that I'm calling Spitballing with Sandro. It's a ridiculous name, uh, but the segment is a lot of fun. Uh, we talk about a lot of different things. Sandro even went upstate to get his car recently. So enjoy. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Continue to tell your friends about this podcast. I really appreciate every listener and have a great rest of your day. So Bruce, how are you? I'm well. I'm just doing the best, doing the best I can. Recently got out of school, so just enjoying the summer. Yeah, I want to congratulate you on that. Um, usually I'm seeing you at Westfield High School uh, working out with a friend of ours. Uh, well, I call him Coach Al, but Al Smith, who has been on the podcast before. Um, you're usually filming all of it while I'm getting my ass beaten. But um, <laughs> your work is is fantastic. And one of the reasons why I've been, I've been following you for a little bit now, I've been reading a lot of the stuff you put on Instagram and you're a super interesting guy. And so for the listeners who, who don't know who you are, you want to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, talk to us about your background. Yeah. Yeah. So hi, my name is Bruce Arthur Jr. Uh, I'm a resident of Scotch Plains, New Jersey, recent graduate from Rutgers University, New Brunswick, graduated with a BFA in media, media and visual arts. Uh, I'm a photographer, media artist, performance artist. And as, as you previously mentioned, I've been working with my friend Al, AS3 underscore athletics on Instagram, who is uh, one of the best coaches in New Jersey, ask about him. And <laughs> Yeah, no, I've known him for a, I've known him for a good amount of time. Our dads actually play golf together and he went to the same high school as me. So uh, through this interview, uh, I've been doing a lot of photography and videography work for him. So you can catch me doing that. Sweet. Um, so how did you kind of get introduced to the arts and photography? Because um, I don't know, uh, I go to Scotch Plains. Uh, both of us go to Scotch Plains Family High School. You kind of have photography as an elective. You, you have definitely... Uh, a variety of like theater electives and stuff, but it's like something that you kind of have to like really get into it in order to really enjoy it. So you want to tell us about your introduction into the arts? Yeah, so uh, it started in my sophomore year of college. I actually picked up a camera for the first time my sophomore year of college about three oh, or wow. four years ago. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where once I picked it up, I never put it down. And so I, I'd use it, I'd use it constantly. I just walk around campus taking pictures and eventually it just kind of fed into everything that I did to the point where I actually applied for art school and got in. And from, from just photography itself, uh, sprung a whole different plethora of like different visual arts, like photo uh, photography, film photography, videography, performance art. So it really just started off with just the camera in my hands to all of this, all of these other artistic mediums from college that, that's kind of amazing you got you got introduced to the camera your sophomore year of college mm -hmm. so you want to like walk us through like that day like who introduced it to you or was it just kind of something that you stumbled upon 
It was actually, uh, I, needed a, I needed a creative hobby and it was my birthday. So I asked for a camera. So when I, got the, when I got the camera, like I said, it was just something that I never put down. It was kind of like intuition. I needed a creative hobby. I've never been a drawer. I've never been a painter, but mm-hmm. I've kind of had an affinity for digital arts. Like I've always enjoyed watching videos or enjoyed photography. So it's something that I decided to, you know, pick up by myself. And, you know, that sprung into a lot of different things. Uh, and just background on me, I actually used to be a producer, uh, producer for a morning show. And so it's actually nice to be on this side of the camera for once. Yeah. Uh, but it fed, it fed into like almost everything that I did once I had picked it up. It just kind of allowed me a creative outlet that I can explore different, different creative outlets through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to kind of like talk about some of the avenues that you've explored a little bit later. But when was kind of the moment when you decided to pursue this as like a career you mentioned that you applied for art school you got in but like do you remember like a certain moment that you were like yeah like this is this is my my future i can't remember a specific moment but uh at my school specifically we don't necessarily have majors like it's a visual arts major but Mm -hmm. it's a specific concentration and when I was applying for school, when I actually got accepted, I got accepted for the photography program. But I think it was at this point where I decided to continue with it because instead of going for photography, I decided to go in for media. I wanted to kind of broaden that horizon. I didn't want to limit myself to a specific, uh, specific avenue. Instead, I wanted to be able to give myself an education that allowed me to branch out into different mediums, which is why now I'm a videographer, producer, performance mm-hmm. artist, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't want to put myself in the box. I kind of wanted to allow myself to blossom into whatever I felt in- most interesting. Personally, I-, I had no idea that you picked this up uh, your sophomore year of college. I, I was talking to-, to Al about you a little bit and he was telling me, yeah, like he's a really creative guy, but I wasn't expecting you to pick it up in college. That's amazing to me. So like, what was some of the stuff that you were doing prior to that point? Like, did you have a, uh, like a specific hobby that you were, uh, that you were doing at that time? Um, uh, I, when I grew up in Scotch Plains, a lot of my friends were, uh, a lot of my friends played instruments, you know, mm-hmm. Scotch Plains is a great band city. So I had a lot of friends that were playing instruments and I too play, I play guitar and I play bass. Oh, I play and, guitar too. Yeah. Nice. Um, when I got into college, I think my, I think my second semester, I started taking, um, audio classes. I started learning how to, you know, work in a recording studio, stuff like that. So that became my first artistic avenue besides like the actual music. It started out with music and sound recording, and then eventually just, uh, became visual arts, became media arts in general. So that was my creative outlet before photography kind of took over. Interesting. And so you're, you're a Scotch Plains native, Noah, you're a Scotch Plains native. Um, all three of us kind of grew up in the same town. I've, I've read your artist bio, uh, extremely powerful along with all the other work that you're doing. And so we've, we've kind of had different upbringings, different experiences. Uh, do you want to, you want to share about those experiences a little bit and how has that kind of shaped your identity and also affected some of your work as an artist? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in a small section of Scotch Plains called Jersey land. It's kind of like, a corner area we have our golf course we have a community center we have a park and you know people people come and visit but like there is a small area and this is this is actually mostly populated by african-american people and from like an early age and 
based on the teachings of my parents, I started to notice that it was like a very heavily policed area. Like cops would post up at the community center, the, the golf course, that there's a school outside my house, people would post up there. And it all, uh, it, became, it really became, began mentally with Trayvon Martin to the point where I started paying more and more attention to it. And my parents started teaching me like, you know, it's kind of an unfair world. And I've always known it was an unfair world to people of my skin color. And, you know, you see it all over the news right now. You see what's happening right now. It's people waking up to the privilege of, um, you know, maybe there is an unfair balance in this world. And I've never been, uh, I've never not been aware of that because I've always been this color. So it was really, um, I wouldn't even say it was a wake up call. It was just, especially everything that's going on right now, I felt as though I had to speak on it because it was the life that I had been raised to understand up to this point. But at such a young age, kind of kind of seeing you, the area that you were living in was being heavily policed. What was that kind of like to like see that at such a young age? You know, it's, it doesn't register to you. It really doesn't register to you. It just feels like normal. It feels like, you know, this is how things should be. But you get to the point where you realize that it isn't. It was really, I think it was college that really turned me on to the point, the fact that um, diversity. Mm-hmm. It was really a lot of, a lot more diversity and a lot more woke, woken up people who are talking about subjects like this. Once I finally left Scotch Plains is when I realized how, um, how controlled this area of Scotch Plains actually was because I got to talk to other people who had felt the same thing that I had. And it started to register that this wasn't necessarily a normal upbringing. It was something that was kind of forced upon me from a young age. So from, I would say from a young age, it didn't, didn't really, uh, I didn't really register it. But yeah. when, I, when I was surrounded by people who um, understood it, understood the same things and dealt with the same things is when I really started to wake up to what was actually happening here. Yeah, and kind of going off that point, do you do you sense a, a lack of dialogue and discussion kind of kind of in Scotch Plains? Or not not only Scotch Plains, but predominantly white towns? Like do you sense a, a lack of dialogue and constant discussion? I do actually. Um there's there's been there's been a protest in Scotch Plains, just one. And there was also an open there's an open town meeting uh, at the at the municipal building. And, you know, I got up and spoke there too. And I just talked about my experience, but, and a lot of other people of color talked about their experience, but just like listening to what everybody says, listening to what everybody was um, expressing, it did feel like there was a divide between us and people who are trying to ally their, themselves with what's happening in Scotch Plains as though like nothing necessarily is happening here. And I can even point out a few d- days ago, there was actually a, there was actually a rally to keep the Columbus statue because of the Italian Americans that live in Scotch Plains. And it was actually voted to keep the Columbus statue in Scotch Plains, no matter what it represents because of the Italian American. And, you know, as, as people are starting to wake up to what's happening, it was a reason why people were taking down the Columbus statue specifically. So like growing up in a town that thinks it's okay to keep that statue, um, just it just says a lot about what's going on in the town and how people actually feel about what's happening around. Okay. So do you think these experiences like you grew up with in Scotch Plains have affected the work you do and how you do your job, like as an artist? Absolutely. Um, 
you know, I can't separate myself as, as I, I posted, you talk, briefly mentioned my artist statement, but my artist statement actually speaks about my upbringing in Scotch Plains, how, you know, I don't necessarily see the color of my skin as a problem. I actually see it as a blessing that I am this color, that, that I am this person. And a lot of my work, especially for like um, three athletics or DJs or specific influencers is meant to actually uh, show like, the positive side of being an African-American in the United States and just show, the rep give representation to timelines, give representation to other artists. And that's essentially why I shoot the way that I shoot is because I want uh, my people to be represented for what they are. It's just the beautiful people, beautiful color, exact, et cetera, et cetera. And you wrote in your artist statement, like as a black artist, I often feel pressure to speak on the struggles of being black in America. And honestly, I don't agree. I thought that was one of the most uh, striking lines in that statement, because wh why do you think there, there's constantly that external pressure to, to speak on the struggles of, of being Black in America rather than being able to celebrate it? Because you, um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, yeah. um, the list goes on, Ahmaud Aubrey. It, it, you constantly go in the news and you see the bad things that are happening. And I can't ignore the fact that these bad things are happening, but I'd like to celebrate the good things as well. It is, I do believe as an artist, as somebody who has a voice, has a platform, it is uh, part of my responsibility to speak on these things when they happen. But I'd also like to empower, I really want to empower people like me, people of my color, people of my creed, to you know use their voices in a positive light um, start new initiatives, um, sell, uh, promote, promote brands, be seen, essentially, which is why representation is something that's extremely big for me. Yeah. Uh, I do believe we all can use our platforms to do good, but I would like to use my platform to uplift the Black community instead of remind everybody of the problems that plague the Black community daily. And, and as, your, as your career continues, is that like one of your your main goals? Like, what what do you hope to? How do you, how do you hope to change people's people's mindsets about kind of the stuff that we were just talking about? I hope to give a platform to more black artists, more black creatives, more black personalities, mm -hmm. um, so they can use their platforms to speak out on these issues or create new initiatives or you know, just be upstanding individuals that people look up to. Like, I didn't always have that black, that black role model that I wanted to see in the media. So I want the generations after us to have black role models to look up to. And I want to be able to provide representation for people so they can grow out their brands um, and be that influence that they, uh, be that change that they seek to seek in the world. Yeah. And I just want to go back to your, to your artist statement one last time. Um, I, I kind of read this like 20 times, the artist statement, because I, I thought it was fantastic. Um, so, you, so you talked about your upbringing and how you grew up upper middle class in a suburban neighborhood. And you kind of often felt, felt left out because you, you weren't black enough to be black and you weren't white enough to be white. So it kind of sounds like it took you some time to kind of find your identity. So how did you come to terms with, with this? and and kind of discover your identity and and what would you say to to others who are kind of in a similar position as you well my response to that is what i would say to others is just like you are who you are 
Um, embrace the person that you are. You don't necessarily have to fall into a category. You are your own person. Um, me growing up, like I, like I said in this statement, I didn't necessarily feel black enough to be black or white, en uh, white enough to be white, but I am me and I can do what I can to, you know, claim my own identity. So I am Bruce Arthur Jr. Uh, I am an African-American individual and nobody can necessarily, nobody can take that away from me. So what I would say to anybody who's struggling with this is just be yourself, be, be your most authentic self. Yeah. And how, how did you kind of figure out just, just be you? Like, how, how did you come, come to terms with that? Um, it's when I, when I got to school, it, it has to do with the fact that I met other people like me and they all had different upbringings. They all had, um, different ways of growing up. I met more West Indian people than I ever thought I'd met. Uh, I'd ever know. I met more African people than I ever thought I met. And we all grew up different, different ways, different places. So knowing that there's just like a plethora of people like you that aren't actually like you, mm -hmm. it's just kind of knowing that you're just one person in this sea of different people, uh, and you don't necessarily have to be any specific individual because you are your yourself, your authentic self. Yeah, and that's definitely like a source of comfort. I, I kind of want to switch gears now. So very soon after the killing of George Floyd, you attended a, a protest in Hoboken. And so you, you do you want to describe uh, how you like created the light box and, and you, <laughs> Do you want do you want to explain that? Because I, I don't think I'm gonna do it justice. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole process to the reason uh, to the the how I created it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm gonna focus more on the why I created it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what it was, it was a light box. Uh, I put one of my lights in inside the box, and on the base of the box that I was holding up, I had uh, a camera, mm -hmm. and. When I said the front of it said the revolution will be televised and the back of it said the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will be televised was essentially a warning for people who were going to not protest peacefully because uh, essentially what we're trying to do here is spread awareness. We're not trying to riot. We're not trying to cause a scene. We're trying to make people aware of the issues that plague this country. So the revolution will be televised is a warning to people saying that if you act out of line, this was to cops or anybody, and not necessarily just by me, by anybody, it will be seen by people. Um, we live in a social media generation where everything can be seen by somebody or not. So, you know, act, act accordingly, protest. You have a right to peacefully protest. Let's peacefully protest and let's make our voices heard. On the other side, it says, um, the revolution will not be televised, which is actually a quote by Gil Scott Heron. And this, to me, was the more important uh, point, is that we can go out, we can protest, and we can make our voices heard, but the real revolution happens within the individual person. Um, people waking up to their privilege, people realizing that things need to change is something that you don't necessarily see on the outside, but it's something that happens on the inside. And the real revolution happens um, when we're filling out the census or when we're in the polls and we actually have to make our voices heard and on a platform that's actually going to make change. We can change the minds of the people, but if we don't act and work, do the actual work to make real change, then nothing's actually going to change. So when I say the revolution will not be televised, I'm talking about the individual mentalities of people who are going through this struggle. This is 
that's where the actual fight is happening. You need to wake up to what's actually happening and change yourself so you can change the world around you. And you, you, you brought it up. It's a, it's a social media generation and you kind of have more people becoming involved. You have more people. Well, I, I don't want to use the word involved, but, but posting about what's going on more than ever before. Do you feel, do you feel optimistic? or is optimistic the wrong word? Do you feel confident that there, there will be a change in the future? I feel like throughout history, we've always changed a little bit, but never gotten to the real issues. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I, has been echoed at multiple protests that I've seen is that this is the last generation. Like the generation after this will not have to deal with it because of the change that we're doing in this generation. I, I believe that the work that we're doing right now is going to make real legitimate change but it won't, it won't hold up if we don't continue to put in the work day after day. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of people waking up to the problems happening in America now, but we need to continue. We can't just say, um, okay, we've made some change. Now let's get content. No, we need to continue doing the work day after day. It's not just in the United States problem. Like we're dealing with issues all over the world. And we can't just say now that we've solved the United States' problem, we can just mm -hmm. take a break. Everything's done. No, we need to go day after day to make sure that the work is done. So I do feel like the next generation will have it better, but we, I do believe that we have to continue going and going and going and going until we actually make the change that we want to see. And, and kind of making sure that this, this isn't a trend. And yeah. we, we've talked a lot about virtue signaling on the podcast. And, and I've asked like quite, we've asked quite a few guests like this question do you feel that there are people out there though who are kind of just trying to protect their image and just posting the post and and how can we combat that and how can we really get them involved it's yeah i absolutely do like there's this thing that people like to refer to as performance activism people who just kind of want to save face by um save face by posting, you know, that black screen that one day and then not posting about anything again. And that's, it's not enough. It's simply not enough for somebody to say that they support the cause, but never do any of the work to uh, change anything. I don't believe Black Lives Matter is a trend. I don't believe um, any of this is a trend, but I do think social media keeps it trending. Uh, and if people, once people start to, once I, I did say it in my video. I said, um, once, once this stops trending, people will hop off the boat. So it's essentially not just for social media, but just in reality is just keeping something like this trending, keeping like something like this relevant. And the way that people have taken down Christopher Columbus statues, people have um, uh, spray, paint, spray painted Black Lives Matter on streets is important, but it's not the actual change that needs to happen. It is essentially performance activism. And performance activism has its place in history, like taking down Columbus statues is essentially performance activism, but I can rest easy knowing that future generations of people won't have to grow up seeing Columbus statues, which is mm -hmm. actually kind of important to me. So I do think that performance activism stand, has its place, but without the actual work to back it up, I do just think it is just that, a performance. And well, oh no, you can. I, I just have like a I don't know a hypothetical, like for the the people who are posting like black screens, who are just trying to protect their image, and they don't really back the cause. 
and they just they just feel if they don't post the 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 black screen, then they feel like they might be excluded or like bullied for not like like sort of the cancel culture aspect of things. Like, what would you say to them? Would you recommend them just not post it on, or would you like try to get them involved further? Um, that that's a hard that's a hard one. I would say. I can't, I can't say be your truest, most authentic self and then tell somebody to post a black screen just to uh, save face. If you're not going to, and this, this was almost how I felt about um, if you guys were following NFL, when Drew Brees made a statement about kneeling, it was, it was sad to see such a leader say such a statement about that, but he made his lines clear. He released a, he released an apology later, um, but it was something that stood out to me because he didn't actually mention why people were kneeling for the flag. So when Drew Brees made that statement, it was almost like saying, this is how I feel. And this is, this is who I am. And this is my opinion on the entire subject. And to me, I can honestly, for, for me, I can say, if that's how you feel, then that's obvious. You've made, you've made that clear to people that you don't necessarily agree with what's going on right now. So essentially it's stay out of the way who are, stay out of the way of the people who are trying to make actual change. You don't have to perform if you don't necessarily believe in the cause, but if you don't believe in the cause, then you've essentially made your place clear. And is that place, well, I just, I just want to go off of Noah's statement because we had a, we had a discussion about Drew Brees' comments and Malcolm Jenkins, uh, did you see his video? His video was extremely powerful. Um, you might have to remind me on it. I might have seen it, but uh, might have to jog me up. I, I forgot. I forgot like the exact words that he said, but he he made national headlines. So uh, he 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 probably yeah you probably did see it. But yeah, I does, think I did, but I don't necessarily remember. Does someone like Drew Brees, who who clearly doesn't doesn't support the movement? does he deserve to get canceled? I don't necessarily buy into this whole cancel culture. Um, I think, I think it's a social media thing. Like it's a social media trend to actually cancel people. You know, people are people and Mm -hmm. they're going to be people no matter what, like some people are terrible. Some people say terrible things. Uh, So this whole cancel culture doesn't necessarily, I, I don't necessarily jive with the whole thing. I don't think you deserve to be canceled for, your statements, but you're going to find a crowd of people who agree with those statements. And that may not be the crowd that you actually want to be surrounded by. And you're going to find a crowd of people who don't necessarily agree with those statements. And those might be the people that you actually want to be surrounded by. So it is technically no cancel culture, cancel culture. But, you know, if you're speaking your truth, don't be surprised with the result that comes from it. Well, and and that's that's interesting because we've been talking about cancel culture on the past few episodes. And it's just such a, it's a polarizing thing because Drew Brees, he clearly doesn't support the movement. And I don't, I don't agree with his statements, but people were calling for him to just totally get canceled. And I I don't know, is that the answer? Because if we just cancel him altogether, that leaves no room to educate and it leaves no room to further, further the discussion. Because for every, every prominent athlete who speaks out and makes a controversial statement, there's probably at least, an, at least 100 people who probably feel the same way. 
And so if, if we cancel him, then I guess that room leaves no room for dialogue or, or any education at all. And I completely agree. I think when people say things, it leaves room for people to talk about the things that they said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Drew Brees' statement actually opened up the doorway for a lot of conversations to be had, which I feel like are important. You know, people may agree with him, but then it leaves uh, an open doorway for people to be like, no, what he said was wrong and this is why. So I think the fact that people say things um, is actually just an important window for other people to get in there and educate people on why this is wrong, why that may not be something that applies to everybody, which is, you know, kind of one of those gray areas of cancel culture. It's just like, you, you can say your truth. You are your own person. So you can speak on issues, how you feel about them, but, it's kind of like this free speech thing. Like you can say what you want, but people are going to say what they want back. And that's what free speech is essentially. It's going to start a conversation no matter what happens. And I'm I'm not sure if we're going to be, I'm not sure if we would have this conversation without social media involved. Because I think social media, that's a must in, in, in this idea of cancel culture and, and all this polarization. But I want to go back to, the revolution will not be televised. I'm, we we kind of got a little bit away from it, but that's fine. How did you come up with that idea, and, and why did you choose those words specifically? Well, it's it's a peaceful philosophy. I feel like it's a more peaceful philosophy to think that, you know, we may be on the front lines of a civil rights movement, but, you know, no matter what happens, it's mostly, we, we can, it's, Again, when we were talking about performative, just kind of put it all together. You know, you talk about all this performative acts, but if the performance doesn't actually change the minds of people, if people are just stepping on the front lines to save save face, then no change is actually being made. But if people actually see what's happening and start doing the research or having the conversations, then that's going to actually change their minds or educate them to, you know, the things that are actually happening. So when I say the revolution will not be televised, I'm saying that, you know, think about what's happening right now. Make an active effort to educate yourself on the things that are happening right now, because you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily know until you start doing the work to understand. And so the revolution will not be televised is people's changing their ideas or learning about the ideas of what's actually going on so they can make the true mental change and have the conversations and do the education and do the actual work. That's brilliant right there. Yeah. And uh, before we talk about your video, because I, I definitely want to spend a good amount of time on that. Um, LeBron James, like when asked about everything that's going on, he said the other day that Black Lives Matter isn't a movement it's a lifestyle and no one no one has really said that in in that way before uh what are your thoughts on that statement because because i've never no one has really said something like that and so i thought it was very very interesting and uh very different to see his perspective well black lives are life so when you say black lives matter he is a black man his life his life matters so when he says black lives matter it's my life matters. So it's essentially, yes, it is a lifestyle. It's the lifestyle I live. It's the lifestyle that LeBron James lives. It's the lifestyle that Tiger Woods lives. It's just, it's not a, it's not a moment. It's not a moment. It's a movement. It's something that should be talked about until it's ratified, ratified, <laughs> until it's fixed. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that should be talked about, talked about until it's fixed because, you know, there are, 
uh, there are different levels of how you know Americans are treated. Matter uh, depending on the skin color, depending on the ethnicity, depending on you know where people are from, and it is something that needs to be fixed. It's essentially something that needs to be fixed, and we we don't. Uh, I keep saying it, but it's it's not a moment. It's a movement. Something that needs to. It's a conversation that needs to continue being had until it's fixed. And it's not the last conversation that needs to be had. Um, we still have to talk about all the things going on in the world. We still need to talk about Syria. We still need to talk about China. And we still need to talk about um, everything that's going on here. So when we talk about these movements as you know trending topics, that's we're really missing the point. They're actually things that need to be fixed and need to actually be understood and that we need to put the work in to um, ratify. So when, when you have Black Lives Matter, that's a lifestyle. Why, why is movement, I guess, tacked on to the end of it? Is that just to try to get more people involved? Like, wh why, is, why is it Black Lives? Yeah, I, I, I said the question, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Black Lives Matter movement, it's, movement is a moment in time. And, you know, George Floyd, George Floyd uh, started this movement, essentially. Uh, it's, it is a moment in time. It is essentially a moment in time where people were just like, no, this is not okay. And we need to, we need to fix this. This is, we need to have this conversation now. Like we really need to have this conversation now. Mm -hmm. And that's what a movement is. It's just something that is a conversation that's happening now, but this conversation needs to continue happening. So when we say movement, it's just, it's something that starts and it's a conversation that ha that's keep can use going for a little while. But when we just continue having the conversation, it's just a conversation. It's just a movement. It's a, it's, it's just a time. It's just a moment in time where we need to continue having this conversation. So when I say um, it's a, it's not a moment, it's a movement. It's something that needs to continue happening throughout history, throughout time, throughout generations um, until it's fixed. I, I want to transition here now into, into the, the video that you created. And I, I want to recommend to the listeners to, to pause this click the link in the podcast description and that will kind of take you to Bruce's powerful declaration uh, you made a week after the killing of George Floyd. I, I hope that's okay if with you if I, if I link the video in the uh, description. Yeah, no, please. Absolutely. So why, why did you decide to make that video? Oh, it was actually the morning before I graduated. I actually graduated from college maybe like two hours after that. But I felt like it was important that I record that message because I, you know, I grew up like this. This is, this is, a, this is the way that I grew up. Um, I didn't, I can't say that I didn't know that these things were happening, but like I had said before, it's, it was kind of my lifestyle. I wasn't aware of these injustices happening because it was the only thing I had ever known up to, up to that point in my life. And I, I said it in the video that, you know, at any point that could have been me. And that was kind of something that, uh, that is something that uh, I've had instilled in me from a very young age, that at any point, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, Maud Aubrey could have actually just been me. So I was always taught to be a little more safe, which is why I showed people the, the camera that I had, which can actually be seen as a form of a gun, because it's not something that I can just go out in public using because you know, George Floyd died over a $20 bill. So something something as serious as a fake gun uh, 
might actually be a serious issue uh, just by anybody seeing it, literally. Yeah. In, in that video, that reached a, a, a wide range of people. I, I saw it through, of course, Al's Instagram. And I, I remember watching that. And that's when, that's like when my, when my view kind of, kind of changed on some of this stuff, because that, that video, when I saw you fold the tripod into the gun, I was like, this is, this is like kind of what you have to live with every day. This is kind of what you always have in your head 24 seven. What were you hoping that, that listeners or, or viewers would kind of get out of this? I kind of shared with you with my piece, but what were you hoping that uh, other people would get out of it? Well, my history as a performance artist allows me to speak on topics that um, may be a little bit hard uh, to speak on, but you know, I'm very comfortable in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. So when, when people are asking me about how my life is or how this applies to me, I just thought it was important for me to, you know, get in front of the camera and use my platform to just put it all out there. Essentially just say everything that's happening. I thought it was really important for somebody with a voice, somebody with a platform to try to um, educate people on what's happening or inspire other people to, to speak on their stories because it's not, it's not necessarily easy for me to talk about these topics. I don't necessarily like talking about these topics, but they're, they're conversations that need to be had. And if somebody else wants to have this conversation, but is too scared, I want them to know, like, I'm a person exactly like them. I'm just a normal person who has had to deal with something like this for my entire life. And it's okay to, it's okay to speak on topics like this because, you know, your voice is important. We want to hear what you have to say. Do, do you think, if if a white man like went out with that camera gun thing, the result would be the same as if a black man did. So I recently saw a commercial. Uh, it was a black man and his son. And by the end of the commercial, you find out that the black man is a judge. It was a PSENG commercial. And the message was, let's eradicate the look. And the look was in quotes, but it's that look that black people get um, when they're they might be seen in a place where they ne may not necessarily belong. It's that, you know, suspicious look. And I don't think, you know, somebody would pull a gun on me just for pulling that out. I don't know if somebody would. I don't know if somebody wouldn't. However, I have felt this look before when I don't believe that I belong in an area and somebody sees me there and asks me what I'm doing there or wonders why I am there. Fan Fanwood, any place in Fanwood is probably a prime, prime example where you might get the look. Mm -hmm. And when, when white people walk into a white establishment, they don't get a second thought. But when a black person walks into a white establishment, there might be a little bit of resistance. And even that small point of hesitance is an issue that we need to uh, shed light on. Uh, I think it's a problem. I don't believe that if a white person had that gun, they'd necessarily um, get the look. But I know if somebody like me was to walk around like that in Fanwood, they might get a second look or a second glance. Mm -hmm. And I think just that second glance is the issue that we're dealing with here. So kind of when you, when you feel like you're, you're getting the look, describe to us like what it's like to to get that look and do you do you leave the place that you're currently in like how do you how do you respond to that 
Well, I I wouldn't just necessarily leave, but I can I can just dig into my history about my some of my police experience. Um, there have been times where, because I live in Scotch Plains, so sometimes I will be walking away. I will be walking home from Fanwood to New, uh, Scotch Plains, and I will actually be followed by cops. That's this happened to me. It's happened to me in the past that they track me back into Scotch Plains um, just on a whim. And I have actually been stopped late at night by um, Fanwood police just asking me what I'm doing in Fanwood. Like, I don't necessarily like that question. <laughs> yeah. there, there's a lot There's a lot that insinuates that question that necessarily I don't belong in Fanwood, but I do not, I don't ignore the fact that Fanwood is a predominantly white town and that a white cop is asking me what I'm doing there. Especially because it, it does fall, does it fall on the border of, yeah, it falls on the border of Plainfield as well. Mm-hmm. And I've had multiple multiple people from Plainfield, a lot of people from Plainfield tell me to stay out of Fanwood. Um, you know, uh, one of the one of the Fanwood police officers was cited for racist comments very recently, and it came as no surprise to me. It came as literally no surprise to me because I've been through Fanwood, I've dealt with Fanwood people, mm-hmm. and I understand what the look means in terms of not only just a, a citizen perspective, but a police perspective. It's just like, you may not belong here. Why are you, what are you doing here? So when I speak on the look, it comes from like a history of me dealing with police while necessi- not necessarily being, doing anything wrong or, you know, being suspicious, just kind of being a black person in a predominantly white town. And, and when the cop uh, came up to you in Fanwood and, and asked, what are you doing in Fanwood? Like, how do you respond to that? You, you respond with honesty. It's like, I've been taught from a very young age to, you know, and I, the fact that I even have to have conversations like this is just a testament to growing up Black in America. But my parents have always taught me, you know, when you are in a police situation, you should, you know, either record the situation or call a friend. You should not reach for any pockets very promptly. You should answer with all, all the questions. Uh, respectfully and you know you should get out of the situation relatively scot-free it's one of those situations where you know I don't necessarily agree with the fact that I had to grow up thinking like that but when a cop asked me to you know go through all those necessary channels I have to be very conscious of everything that I do extremely conscious of everything that I do I just I I just want to go back to the, the the gun thing I think it's just a little far-fetched to kind of say a a white person with the gun and a black person with the gun the the result would be any different for me to say with that like anything that looks like a gun I think everyone's getting the look I agree that the look happens predominantly to black people but I feel like with that that gun it's unfair to I feel like it's kind of baiting it in you know what I mean um google Tamir Rice that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> That's all I really have to say about that. Do you wanna you wanna go into uh, what happened to Tamir Rice or? Is- no, it's a, it's a it's a new story. It's something that's been talked about for a long time. I'll, all I have to say is because you're not necessarily baiting somebody by. Yes, I, I understand. Like the camera, the camera itself may look like a gun, and specifically the way I hold it may also seen a, be seen as a gun, but. If you'd like to understand why this is so important, just look up Tamir Rice, and that will explain the entire situation to you. All right. So you don't think if a white person 
with a gun, like with the same thing, they would be, they would, police would come out like with their guns blazing? No, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily believe that the same situation would pan out the same way. I don't think the same suspicion would uh, be, I don't think the same suspicion would be put on a white person holding a weapon of some sort. I grew up in Scotch Plains. There were a lot of BB gun fights in my town. There were a lot of BB gun fights in my town. I was never allowed to own one. Um, but I don't necessarily think that the situation, especially the fact that I've been in Westfield and I've gotten second looks for just being there. I think that the situation would es be escalated by the fact that I am a black person holding something like this. And, you know, that second look is extremely important. Like even that first look, just looking at it and just being like, oh, this person is holding something. But that second look is just, that second look is actually what I'm really talking about here. Because, you know, a white person holding weaponry is a problem. It's a serious issue. But a black person holding weaponry, well, George Floyd didn't have to hold weaponry. He was holding a $20 bill. And you saw how that situation panned out. And I really would advise you to look into the whole Tamir Rice situation because that really is just the encapsulation of everything that uh, we're talking about right now. I will. I, ju I just disagree that a, a white person and a black person both holding a weapon would turn out any, any differently. I'm sure there's outlier situations, but the police do like they do what they have to do when there's a person suspected to be holding a weapon. That's my take on it. And you're allowed to have that opinion. But I would advise you to do the research on things that have actually happened and the mistreatment of situations like this and realize that um, there is a disparity between when white people do one thing and when black people do things and how the cops will react to those situations. Like you're entitled to your own opinion, but I would advise you to do the research on the disparity between the two situations. Yeah, I agree with that statement. But I think when it comes to guns, nothing's changing for me. Just do the research. All right. So um, this, this is kind of why it's, it's important to have conversations like this. Uh, I, I want to move on. I want to move on now. So iron sharpens iron. I want to talk about uh, your experience with, with Al, uh, you working with him. And any, anyone who knows Al, you know you're going to be thrown into a very intense, it's going to be an intense and competitive environment. Uh, what has it kind of been like to work with him and, and what have you been able to take away? Um, so I've known Al for a really long time. We're both track athletes. We both ran track um, at St. Joe's Metuchen. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Al's a great trainer. Al's a really good trainer and he's a great speed trainer. What I mostly get for him, from him is I, I work on my balance. I work on my camera work with him because I'm, a, I'm an action. I do a lot of action camera, especially with Al Smith and the work that he actually puts me through. Cause I actually am a client as well as um, somebody who works with him is a lot of balance workout that allows me to be a better cameraman. So a lot of mobility, a lot of um, navigation through small spaces um, and a lot of leg strength training. And basically he reaps the spoils of that because the better I become at using my camera, the better footage that he ends up getting. So it's really that whole iron sharpens iron um, aesthetic with me and Al, as well as just like him and his athletes. Yeah, no doubt. And I saw you yesterday on, uh, you posted on your Instagram in your backyard, you were, what, what was it? Like a, a stick? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I was using, I was using, it was, I'm using a, a broomstick, but I'm learning how to manipulate a bow staff because um, the way that I use my action cam is actually very akin to using a bow staff. I actually hold my action cam upright uh, to the point where it just, it kind of, the, the way that I manipulate it can also be um, improved by seeing it as an extension of my body, seeing it as this, this weapon, um, or not necessarily weapon, but just instrument of just an extension of my body. So the way that I use the bow staff is how I intend to start using my camera, just trying to focus on using it as an extension of my arm, an extension of my eyes, and you know, become more comfortable with it as um, a tool. I, I thought I, when I when I saw that video, I thought I thought that was so cool because uh, on your Instagram you wrote about how it's gonna uh, increase coordination, balance, fluidity, and you're gonna be able. It's gonna improve how you uh, film in like small spaces, which you mentioned earlier, uh, specifically in like recording studios and garages. So I don't know. That was super cool for me. Uh, when I got to that. Um, before we wrap up here, what was it like to graduate during a pandemic? <laughs> so I'm not even going to, I guess it's not really a funny story, but I'll tell it anyways. Like the week of my spring break, um, the week that we came came back from our spring break was it's actually spring break for college. first okay. 14. Spring break for college, what, uh, what time is that during, typically? I think it was March. Okay. But if you actually want to know, it was the week, the week after our spring break was the week New Jersey went into quarantine. Um, so I was lucky enough to actually have an apartment at the time and I had my own personal studio, but it was really just like, you know, let me, let me wake up, roll out of bed, roll into my studio and jump on the Zoom call. Uh, I, I've, I've gone to classes in my pajamas. I've gone to classes in my pajamas, actually, like actually, but no more times than uh, when I was in quarantine, just kind of rolling out of bed and just jumping on the Zoom call. Alternatively, uh, you know, just kind of taking the Zoom call in your bed when you're just too lazy to make it up to the studio. It's, it's a different experience. I will say it's not the full experience. I honestly hope that schools let back in when it's safe, because it's not safe now. Um, because it's not the same educational experience that you uh, are paying for or bargaining to get or trying to get. Uh, so it's different. It was really different. It was help it helped to adapt the situation, but it also helped a lot of my media graduates, uh, a lot of my media graduates transition to an online format. Uh, you know, art is really something that should be experienced in person, but it also does help for us to understand how art can be effective um, from a media source. Mm -hmm. So it really did kind of strengthen that bond between the artist and online media so that we can actually learn how to create and spread our, spread our art through a wider base. So, you know, not, not necessarily fantastic, but it absolutely had its perks. Definitely. And so the pandemic, um, so we're now kind of in the second wave. What, how are you, are you still getting like freelance work? You've been doing some freelance work. Like how, how have you been able to work during this time? Um, because of, because of COVID, uh, I didn't necessarily get to finish the work that I was doing, which was good, good and bad because, you know, it gave me some busy work when I first got out of school. It got me, gave me something that I can continue to work on and continue to, uh, you know, it, it gave me a reason to continue to move. And 
through throughout the months, I've just been doing freelance work for multiple different people. Al was the, literally the first person I reached out to uh, because I knew I knew I could I had something to offer him. I knew I could definitely absolutely help his brand. But for me, it's really just um, you know finding finding brands that uh, really can actively be helped by me. Um, people that need more representation of their brand, people who want uh, photography, videography, or just necessarily advisement. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not all about just, it's not all about picking up a camera or picking up a video. It's just, I know something, you don't know something. Let me help you, let me help you help your brand grow, essentially. Yeah. So that's the work that I've been like uh, taking on so far. Cool. Uh, you, you have anything else to add? Uh it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you, you finding time to speak with us. I really do. Yeah. Um, not too much to add. Uh, follow AS3 underscore athletics on Instagram. Oh, that's, where that's the where brand can that I work. listeners find you on Instagram? Uh, and I am under Bruce Arthur Jr. And uh, if you want to follow my art page, you can follow me at M-A-G-I the prophet. That's Magi the prophet. Okay. Uh, and yeah, no, uh, everybody stay up. Uh, I know quarantine is hard, but we'll make it through as long as you wear your masks and we should arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. Sandra, what's up, my man? What's Noah, up? how are you guys doing? We're good. So uh, two weeks ago, uh, we did this mailbag. Popular, popular segment. Uh, got really great ratings. We've gone international now. 6% of our listeners are in Japan. So, uh, Shout out to those listeners in Japan. And 4% uh, of our listeners are in the UK. So uh, thank you guys. We appreciate you. Uh, we've gone international. The Mount Levy My Generation podcast has gone international. And so while the podcast has gone international, the new segment on the show, Spitballing with Sandro, has also gone international. So Sandro, what yeah. is it like to have a segment with your name in it? Well, it's been pretty overwhelming. A lot of people like outside my door and stuff like that. I had a couple of Japanese people outside my house. Um, I told them that they go because, you know, it's private property. I didn't want them in front of my house. Mm -hmm. it's kind of yeah. overwhelming. Like a lot of autographs and stuff like that. People want to do meet and greets. I'm getting <laughs> on Instagram. It's been pretty crazy lately. Um, I, I, I got a management team behind me now. So now I'm like behind a management team. I've been doing like shows and stuff like that. But other than that, it's been pretty, uh, pretty regular. Well, Noah, how you doing, dude? I'm the good. Um, I, it seems like Sandra's the star here. I haven't got any of that. Yeah, Sandra's, Sandra's the popular popular man on the pod. Yeah, Sandro. So uh, you kind of have like a lot going on right now. You, so you're waiting for the money to come in for you to pick up your car upstate. Mm -hmm. so, so tell us that story real fast. So as, as you guys all know, two weeks ago, Sandro passed his driving test. They better know. Got his license. And so now he's looking for a car and you want to finish the story from there, Sandra? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm looking for a car, probably just like something reliable, something Chinese or Japanese. They make like the most reliable cars. So I'm thinking like Toyota or Honda. Um, the one shout out our Japan listeners again. Shout out Japan for their cars. Um, so the car I'm looking at is like a Honda Civic Sport, um, but it's like in Long Island, like in Amityville. So I have to go all the way out there for the car. Hopefully he takes it. Um, Matt, Matt threatened to put some bids on the car. Um, but I said, if he did that, I'm going to slash his parents' car's tires. So, so I hope he doesn't do that. An anonymous bid has come in for $30,000. I'll know it's you. And then I'll take it out on your cars. 
So uh, some highlights of my week. I took my first golf lesson to, uh, on Monday. I know. Oh. And uh, all, all, like uh, a few of my friends play golf and I don't know. I've always been like a little jealous that like I was never able to get in the game. I can only play mini golf. And uh, so I had my first golf lesson and I, in a couple of weeks after a couple more lessons, why are you laughing? It's funny. You can only, you've only been able to play mini golf. Yeah. That's what you said. After a couple more lessons, I'm going to, I'm going to conquer the Ashbrook pitch and putt. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, it's not like you play golf, Sandro. No, you play I, golf. I know, I, don't, I know I don't play golf. And actually, I'm, try, I'm trying to get into it. Because I, I caddy so much, I kind of want to get into it now. It seems kind of fun. I, I have a great question for you. All right, let's see if it's So great. you're a caddy and you don't play golf. How does that work? Like, how are you you'd, able to... You'd be surprised. A lot of caddies don't play golf there. How, but how are you able to, to recommend, like, a certain... There's no club. advice giving. They just... Right, you just carry your bag. Well, Wait, you don't give advice? I, no, I, I do give advice. Like, I, I read greens. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. And, like, if they're guests, then I tell them, like, where to hit it because there's, like, tons of blind shots at playing field. Um, so, yeah, like, um, if they're going to hit over a hill, they don't know where the hole is. I'm like, yeah, aim for this tree ball. I'm like, aim for this house-ish area. Mm-hmm. Um, read greens, things like that. Um, but I don't really recommend clubs or anything like that. I just give them yardage, and they kind of decide on their own. They know their yardage for their clubs, so I don't really need to recommend anything. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, you, are you working this summer? Yeah, I'm working the summer, yeah. So, like, what, what has that been like with the pandemic and everything? Have you been able to, like... It's been bad because a lot of the people um, are taking, like, push carts instead of caddies. So, the caddy kind of section of the course isn't, like, doing so well. Where are um, the golf carts, by the way? You can, you can take golf carts as well, too. Oh. But people, like, I don't know why people prefer, like, the push carts more or carrying <laughs> their bag. Because um, usually, like, when there's no COVID, it was you take a golf cart after 3 o'clock. But before 3 o'clock, you have to take a caddy. Mm-hmm. But now because of coronavirus, you can take a patty or uh, you can take a push cart or a golf cart whenever you want. So that's kind of eating into our caddy reps. Um, but I feel like they should at least take one caddy, like force to take one caddy, just like four caddy. You know what I mean? Not hold their bags, mm-hmm. but just to like, um, you know, rake the bunkers, give them yardage because the course looks like a shit show when there's no caddies because nobody rakes the bunkers. Nobody fixed the divots. Um, so it's kind of, it's not great, but yeah. yeah especially like nowadays i'm seeing like four carts on for one like a one foursome because each of them want their own cart for for safety health and safety reasons so um it's definitely not as good for the course yeah and yeah noah you you played golf today uh Uh how did that go it was good i played a shack as a guest for the first time that was nice it's much better than uh no no birdies (laughs) no birdies it was only nine is that your favorite course to play on or, or you've only gotten to play on it one time? I've only played but, on it a couple times. Oh, okay. It's, it's nicer. It's more open. Like we usually play at Scotch Shills. It's like a little tighter, not as much mm-hmm. space to work with. But um, very, very cool. I'm taking my golf lessons up at Galloping Hills uh, with my good friend, Kyle Berger, who... Uh, shout out Kyle. Shout out Kyle. All right. So let's move on. The here. man from Japan. The man from Japan. What, he if, he's like the, what if he's one of the listeners? Does that count? Or no? What? What, Does he count if he's one of the Japanese listeners or no? No, because he's currently living in the United States. Uh, okay. If it was two years ago, he would count because uh, he used to spend time in Japan. He used to live there with his family, but now he's back in the United States. Uh, let's move on here. We're recording this at 8.48 on a Thursday night. Uh, Thursday night, that means basketball is back. Uh, Sandro, 
I know you have the uh, Pelicans Jazz stream up. We're in the fourth quarter right now. Mm. But uh, what is it like to have basketball back? And you see the bubbles working. And then we talked two weeks ago about like baseball and how they were starting up again. And very quickly, baseball is is struggling. Mm. Anyone wanna anyone wanna dive into that? Are you are you are you worried now that seeing the MLB and seeing that they have like similar roster size, football rosters are even larger than baseball rosters. Are you more worried now that the NFL season is in jeopardy because you see baseball and baseball, you have the Miami Marlins team who has like 17 guys positive and then the Phillies. That's uh, in Florida, so you kind of expected that from the beginning. No, but the, the Marlins were playing in, in Philadelphia in, with the Phillies. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, you know, Florida people, they don't think straight. So. <laughs> Sorry if you have Florida listeners, but, um, you know. But uh, are you worried that the NFL season might not happen? I, I'm worried, especially, like, it just takes one team mm-hmm. to – because most of, most of that MLB has been good. Like, yeah. no positive tests throughout most of the teams. It's just the one team, it breaks out. Like, if one person gets it, everyone gets it. And yeah. that could – Anyone who no one wants to play that team, so just don't be the team that gets it. Mm-hmm. And oh, you go, Sander. No, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, it doesn't look, it doesn't make the outlook of the NFL like too good. But it, I feel like it's also like a learning moment for the NFL to see like MLB's mistakes, see what they're doing, and see if they can, um, like, you know, alter their business plan or whatever it is to accommodate, um, the, you know, the issues that they see with the MLB. Um, like, you know, as like a learning moment, but. Mm-hmm. I feel like some things are out of their control, you know, despite what they, you know, do with procedures or whatever. No doubt. And so now that we have talking about baseball out of the way, because I hate talking about baseball. Wow. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about basketball. Uh, so Jazz Pelicans were only one game in, of course, but uh, it was, it was really great to, to see the powerful, uh, powerful moment, all the players, all the coaches, uh, everyone in the arena, uh, during the national anthem, uh, we're kneeling in solidarity. Uh, that was an interesting national anthem, by the way. It's like oh, the arrangement. Like oh yeah, yeah, I, I heard part of that. Kind of like it was like beats and stuff. I was like, like I just didn't I didn't know what was going on. Like remix. Yeah, <laughs> the national anthem remix. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it, it was it was definitely like a powerful moment, and I'm happy that the that the teams arrange. Uh, to do it in a, in a peaceful manner, of course, and, and it definitely sent a statement. And I'm glad that what's not lost in the bubble is still fighting, ju- still fighting for justice for for Breonna Taylor, uh, still for George Floyd, and and the and the list continues to go on. And we have to make sure that that doesn't get lost in everything. I think that was one of the conditions, though, of them. They wouldn't they go back to the bubble unless yeah. they unless they yeah. got certain things out of it. Like well, the names in the back of their jerseys. You look at a bunch of guys. What I was like, I'm I'm looking at. I think Ingram had something like freedom on the back of his jersey, and I'm like, I feel like there are a ton, of, a lot of better, better options than freedom. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just freedom's kind of. Uh, they're like, like say her, say their names, say her name. Like that. a lot yeah, of that. That. equality, yeah. like freedom. I feel like doesn't hit home as much. I, I was just confused as to why he chose that definitely but i'm sure that there is definitely a deeper meaning maybe for for ingram and i guess 
we we must we must like respect that because uh, clearly he believed that I guess choosing freedom was was more powerful to him. And I think like that's the best part about being able to to put names on the back of, or or put whatever phrase uh, you want to on the back of your jersey because it's it's personal choice and you're able you're able to do that. It, it's kind of similar to. I sent you guys like that that clip from Matisse Thibel's uh, vlog about how the Sixers were were trying to come up with one phrase that could that could really uh, what what's the word that I'm looking for like resonate with everyone yeah and so like that phrase pretty much was educate yourself but even though educate yourself is is very vague it that's the purpose because each player will be able to take that in a different different direction mm-hmm. educate yourself about economic inequality educate yourself about racial inequality and in the kind of, in the list kind of goes goes on it's just educate yourself just like how brandon ingram even though he used he used freedom and even though there are many different choices out there he decided to use freedom because that's i guess that's what uh that phrase meant the most to him I see Joe Joe Ingles. <laughs> this was ally. I don't know what was. That's so funny. It's like classic Joe Ingles would pick ally out of all the all the things he could choose. Well, uh, well, he he's he's a white man, and uh, Matt, he I wants. To, um, <laughs> but but I, personally, I don't understand why why we're making like I I, I don't know. Like, I think freedom could have he Ingram could have easily wanted Ingram on the back of his jersey, but he he uses freedom as a scapegoat since he didn't want to be like like called out for not having something on the back of his jersey. I I disagree. I, you I disagree. don't know. I, you have no clue. You have no. Clue. I know, but but that's conjecture right there. I know, but you you're conjecture. You, that's conjecture from you. But, yeah, but I didn't see like anyone with like a name on their jersey yet. I don't know if like, I wasn't looking close enough, but like all no, I, they're not. No, yeah, no, like no. I, I haven't seen like anything with like Brown Taylor or like Elijah McClain. Like all I've seen is like oh oh no, I, they, I, those I, aren't I, approved. Oh, you can't, you can't do that. No, there's only a certain list of approved oh, messages. Oh, okay, well then so, that's a, so one of them was like say her name, which like you yeah, know I saw I saw to. I saw that yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that makes more sense. I I I don't know. I have a I have a bit of a problem, kind of like it's not making fun but like judging like what what players decide to put on the back of their jerseys because at the end of the day you you you're just as easily jumping to conclusions as i am <laughs> but but how you what do you mean you're but saying, how? listen brandon ingram clearly found freedom and and that word freedom clearly resonated with him how do you know that how does it clearly resonate with him because he chose to put it on the back of his jersey. Well, well, how do you know that? Like, because freedom is obviously not one of like the ones a lot of people have. So, so why? Like, it's not. It's not. I'm not gonna say not as powerful, but like there are other ones that address the issue of social inequality more than freedom. So why would he do that? Why would he choose freedom? Because you jump, you saying he there's clearly a meaning. I could just say there's clearly he just wants to have Ingram on his jersey and use freedom just because. See, we have no clue. But, but you, but the NBA, the Players Association, they they approve these these lists of names, and there there's plenty of plenty of phrases or or names, whatever you want to uh, 
call them to, to put on the back of their jersey. And there, there's, a, there's a list to choose from. When, clearly, when Brandon Ingram was, was going through that list, he found free, why, why else would he, would he choose freedom? Like, uh, he chose freedom because it doesn't mean as much and he wanted Ingram on his jersey. That's just as possible as him choosing freedom for a deeper meeting. But that's yeah. silly because LeBron James is keeping James on, his, on the back of his jersey. Same LeBron James is, is a totally different situation. He is he's the, his huge plat, like, platform. Brandon Ingram isn't there yet where he can just do that and stray away from the group. Oh, wait, James uh, has James on his back of his jersey? I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, LeBron James is keeping James on the back of his jersey. Same with Jimmy he, Butler. Wait, did he say like why specifically he's doing that? Cause yeah, because like, he, he thinks they, they don't convey as much of a like just putting a name something a statement on the back of the jersey doesn't really mean anything in it and like I mean, an act change. I mean, I kind of I kind of agree with that. He wants something bigger than the name. Like on obviously, the back like of the jersey. I, I agree with like the message and the motive behind putting those phrases and names on the back of the jerseys. But at the same time, like with James James's perspective, like is really making a change because at this point. All they're doing is raising awareness. But like I said, we kind of touched on it um, last episode is, you know, at one point, like, have you risen awareness and then you take action? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in LeBron James's defense, he has various, various organizations. He's, he's leading the charge on a, on a, uh, but, oh, a no, voting yeah, organization that's working yeah. to, to uh, fight voter suppression and make sure that everyone is able and registered to vote. No, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, this awkward silence right here. Um, I, I, up then. I don't know. I, I just wanted to say that I, I don't think that Brandon, in- Brandon Ingram would just put freedom on the back of his jersey if he didn't believe in it or if it didn't resonate with him. I, I agree if we're talking abolishing slavery. Like back, if, that, if, if their players were putting things on their jerseys back in that time period, then that definitely means more. I feel like I don't know. He it, it doesn't. You don't know if he like what he his intentions are behind it. I know, but just like the the point that I'm making is, I don't think a player would put something on the back of their jersey if they didn't truly believe in it. That that's the that's just. I, my I disagree. I definitely. You don't think? Do you think there are racists in the NBA? Yeah. Just like regardless, of, do you think they're like got white, white and black? Just people who are racist players. Yeah, probably. But the majority of players said that they're not going to Orlando unless they get these messages on their jerseys, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're one of those one of those racist guys, I I, I wouldn't. It's say your ra- job. It's your job to go and play basketball, so you have to put something on the back of your jersey to to fit in with the the pack. I know, but how could a guy be racist if he's if he's sharing the same locker room? If he if he calls his teammate his uh, Look at he, the Iowa he, football he, team. Okay, football is football's a bit of a different sport. I, I feel that the NBA is more of a forward-thinking, progressive sport more than any other. The sport. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. But I, that's not to say that there aren't racists. Okay, that, uh, yeah. that there's probably not like blatant racists, you know, like people like you know yelling racist yeah. things. But but I feel like it's more like yeah. there may be people who have like contradicting views that are popular among. In the Black Lives Matter movement, which is okay, you know, to some degree, I feel like I'm not gonna, you know, hate someone for disagreeing with something, but to some extent. Um, but I feel like there's definitely are people that in the NBA who, you know, maybe have like little like I don't know racist views or ideologies that they aren't vocal about. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But would you say racist? Or would you say implicit bias? Because I, I, it... I think there's racist. I think that both. Like but, maybe but, extremely racist. Like maybe like subtly. Or like, like on the ignorant. Like yeah, no, like you can ignorant. be. Yeah, like more like ignorant. You can be racist without being outspoken about it. There's imp- that. That's totally different. Like being racist without being outspoken about it, mm-hmm. versus implicit bias. Like implicit bias, you. You think you're not a racist, and like you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, what what's the main point that you're getting at, pretty much? No, I just thought, why would Ingram put freedom on his jersey? I just thought it was kind of a weaker message than a lot of the other ones. All right, Sandra, do you have any any last thing to add to it? No, I I don't have too much of a strong opinion about the name on the back uh, on the back of the jersey. So it is what it is. I agree with that too. I was just making a discussion point. So let's let's move on here a little bit. Um, you want to pivot? I mean, so I'm trying to keep the basketball, you know, thing going. I, I got a little bit of a story. Uh, so the other day, I was I was over at a family friend's house for uh, for dinner, and this uh, this family friend is friends with you, Sandro, and uh, my dog was there because my dog was playing with the other dog, and in the bushes he found your old hat he found your old cross hat i lost it like a week ago <laughs> oh you lost it a week ago yeah like it's, it's like new <laughs> how'd you lose it um uh, I, I i left it at the beach like i got it like a month ago and someone brought it home with them and i was at noah's house to go swimming and then the other person brought it there but then i forgot it at noah's house so you know at this point i feel like i deserve to lose it so yeah, the the end of the story ended up with uh, my dog eating your hat. Yeah, so that's disappointing. That I, I'm sorry about that, but that's all right. It's kind of self-inflicted right there. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah, I heard that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a question about the coronavirus now, and I've I've been thinking about this this question for a little bit. Would you Would you rather be asymptomatic and not know? Or would you rather be asymptomatic and no? Well, I feel like I feel like I would want to know, you know, because I don't want to like infect my family. Or like I wouldn't go to work. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't go to like my outside gym that I go to. I wouldn't go to lacrosse practice. I wouldn't go to tournaments. Um, if I knew I had coronavirus, um, you know, I have people in my family that could be at more risk um, to coronavirus. So I don't want to infect them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I would definitely want to know. Noah, what about you? What about you, Matt? Ooh, Uno reverse. Uh, I I would want to know. I would want to know because kind of kind of like what you said. Like I don't want to be asymptomatic, then go see my grandparents, and <laughs> even if like we might be social distancing, maybe like one or two times. You like, might slip a hug. No, what? Uh, I said like one or two times. You might slip in a hug. Yeah, no. or or like one or two times. I I might get too close. And, and knowing how, how contagious the coronavirus is, like you would never want something like that to happen. But then on the flip side, if you're asymptomatic and you never know, it's kind of just like one of those things where your life kind of just goes on. Yeah, I feel that. And, and kind of not knowing could be a source of comfort because if, if you don't know, then you can't, you can't blame yourself. And... You can't, 
I, I don't know. It, it's very, it, it's very complex because the last thing you want to do is pretty much find out you have the coronavirus, but then it's already too late because you already infected someone. And then that person's life uh, is over or, or may change forever. And, and, and that, that's probably the worst, the worst outcome, but it's, it, it's very, it, it's definitely a tough one. I think, I guess since you guys both said you'd, You'd rather know. I, I was leaning towards I'd rather not know anyway. Just so because why if, you you're, not if you're the one person, if you're the one person who gets it in your friend group and like you you know that you got it, no matter what, they're like you're not they're not gonna go near you past the fourteen days. Like they you can tell like they're I don't know about like at least in our friend group, I'm not gonna hang out with them for like another month in person versus if I'm just asymptomatic, they're, they're still gonna, like, I'm still gonna be around them. And the ch- if, if, it get, if people get it, they get it. Like, it's like the flu. Oh, uh, we're gonna end up getting this thing. Like we've done our best efforts, but most of us are gonna get this at some point. Yeah. And I think it's inevitable. But so are, you at like, the point, are you at the point where you've kind of given up on social distancing? No, uh, well, no, but, but it's, like I'm more lenient. You're more lenient. No, I can't, I can't hear you anymore. Yeah, I, I can't hear you now. You've cut out. Yeah, like I'm more lenient on social distancing. Really? So, yeah. I'm, yeah. Do you think that type of mindset though is going to get us in trouble in the long run? Because I've become more lenient too, and I'm starting to, I'm starting to become a little bit more stressed. And I'm starting to become a little bit more. I don't want to use the word guilty, but I am like breaking the rules. And this is all going to come crashing down. No, I think I think it's all right to be a little more lenient. To be honest, like I just you know I don't touch my face, I don't do anything like that. I'm always washing my hands. Uh, I take showers when I get back from work or lacrosse practice, like immediately. I don't like dilly dally or walk around my house knowing that I was just outside. Um, and I don't hang out in like huge groups or anything like that. You know, yeah. most I'm doing is like ten people at max. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm relatively following it, um, and I feel like that's okay. You know, um, I feel like that's all right. Like, are you dapping people up? Um, no, not really. No, no, no. not really. No, no. And like at work, we don't do usually before you start the round, like introduce them, you know, give them a handshake or whatever. Um, you know, we're not really doing that either. Either you know, most you ever get is like a, a knuckle punch or like an elbow, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I think that's safe because what are you gonna do? Are you gonna you know social distance completely until there's mm-hmm. zero coronavirus cases? Like, like at one point it comes to at what point do you stop taking it not seriously but to, to the total total like max extent you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah because because the, the goal of the whole quarantine was just to flatten the curve the goal wasn't to keep us from getting coronavirus mm-hmm. well it, it's no no the goal was to flatten the curve the goal is not to keep us from getting coronavirus getting coronavirus was going to be inevitable in the future the goal was to keep our hospital uh, or like our medical system uh, below the capacity but, because, but flattening it, the curve, the goal is flattening the curve will kind of lead to a continued flattening of the curve. Yeah. Well, it was, it was the main idea of it was to maintain our, our healthcare system. So couldn't go, so there weren't enough hospital beds in one hospital. That was, the goal was to keep that from happening. Mm-hmm. Life is going to have to go on at some point and, and people are going to get the virus 
and it's it's less of a like chance you die from this thing than the flu. It's more, it's easy. You cut out again. Yeah, you cut out. Yeah, oh. you can hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I heard what you said by how the coronavirus is is less deadly. Than Where did the I flu. leave off? Where did I leave off? <laughs> coronavirus is less deadly than the flu. I just want to say I think that mindset is is why we're gonna. It's kind of like why we are like at the place where we're at, because people like don't believe that this virus is is really deadly. It's it's not. It it's it is. No, it's it not. Look at the numbers. Are you scared of getting the flu? Are you scared of going out in the winter? Do you go out every winter? No, it, it's different. No, it's no, more no, deadly. no, 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 no. It no, it's it's less deadly. Look up the mortality rate of coronavirus versus the mortality rate of the flu. Look it up right now. It'll tell you, like, just facts. I know, but... No, there, no there's no plus. Right it has less. Okay, but for the flu, do you wear a mask? But that's the thing. It's easier to catch. I'm saying we're going to get it, but we're not going to die from it. Mortality rate of flu. You have to... Uh... Mortality rate COVID. I'm looking up. Well, I, I, it doesn't show up immediately. Mortality rate of flu. I kind of want to find it. COVID is, is worse than the flu. It's more, Matt, you have facts straight. It is not as deadly as the flu. It is easier to catch and easier to spread. It is easier to catch and easier to spread. It's definitely more of a horrible experience though than the flu. Because like you see people on ventilators and things like that and extreme yeah. body aches. The mortality rate is lower. Yeah. You die less. You're, you're getting, because you're, think of all the asymptomatic people. Okay, yeah, yeah, That yeah. counts in the mortality rate. That does. What are you, yeah. Matt? Why are you saying no? It's just facts. It's information. Well, well, if asymptomatic cases go untested, then they can't count in the mortality rate. Because oh, then the mortality rate just goes uh, down and down and down. So it re you really All just right. don't know. It's less and less. I don't only... know. I, I'm no, just listening what do you mean? to the I'll go doctors get... here. I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my mom. She'll tell you it's less. Okay. <laughs> All right. My final point here is that I just don't, I don't think it's time to give up on social distancing because you, <sighs> coronavirus. Coronavirus is deadlier than the flu now. I looked it up, but it used to it used to be less deadly. No, but you that doesn't take an account into all the all the cases that are asymptomatic. First of all, and all the cases that don't get tested, and all the people that there's you know how many people don't get tested still versus but, versus the flu. But but the high risk age group for for people who are at risk of coronavirus is too great. The, the yeah, risk is, is, is the risk is too great that we. But it's the same I, I thing with the flu. Can't. You know how many people, like old people, die from the flu each year? Well, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't uh, like a lot, a lot of old people, and and yeah, like young. Uh, I'm sure a lot of old infants. people die from from many different things, but we've seen. No, no, no. The flu. The flu. Matt, why you? Why are you so like, uh, tonight? Like, no, <laughs> no. Why? Why are you so against like? It sounds like I'm not against it. I said I'm social dis I'm social distancing with everyone around me. But when it comes to the close knit, like the tight friend group, right? That I've, that I've been hanging out with recently for the past two months. If we have it, we already have it. Yeah, probably. That means we all have it. But exactly. I, I just want to remind you that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. The pandemic has never ended. 
We yes, just all we think know. the pandemic has ended. Yes. No, we know it's not over. But like, yes, like we, we were saying, we're not gonna we're not gonna quarantine in our homes until 2021 or until like you know until I die. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, were ta- we were talking about this in March. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna we were saying how, we were talking about this in March, Matt. How you were saying we you yes you were saying yeah. the goal of this is to maintain for our healthcare system to be maintained. Yes, yeah, not I, for us to keep from getting it. If we get it it won't be the end of the world for us. For us. But we have to think about the others around us. Yes. I know, but that, that doesn't stop, like, the, again, with the flu. The flu is going to spread by us being places. Why won't the flu spread by us being places? It will. Every winter, it does. I, I just don't think we could compare I'm thinking, the flu to the coronavirus. Just because we're in the midst, the midst of the coronavirus right now versus the flu? I, that- I, I don't know. I, this conversation is starting to get silly. We got to... We gotta How? Just listen to the doctors. The, I, I spoke with a doctor. I, I, I kid you not. I spoke with a doctor on... What was it? I went to my dad's, my dad's friend's, like, high school friend's pool party. Mm-hmm. One of them's a doctor. He's a pediatrician. Yeah. No kids. No kids have come in with coronavirus. He said, like, he's been, he's been working... Mm-hmm. He also said that it's time we need to start doing things. I, I kid, this is what he, the doctors, I, I, I can right, do my yeah. best. Like, he said, we, it's time we need to start doing things because it's, it, it's not, nothing we do. Us sitting at home isn't going to do anything for the healthcare system anymore, is, think, what, is what he said. I think a big point, and actually, a doctor said this at the course I was carrying for. I, I always use job when they're talking because I'm a little snitch. Um, so I listen to other conversations when they talk. And he's just the biggest thing is just wearing a mask. And I think that's huge too. Like when you're in huge public areas, like not so much here, like a family in Scotch Plains, because like when you go in public, you know, you may not encounter anybody, at least on my block. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't necessarily need to wear a mask. But like if you go into stores um, or like if you're in really big public areas, like New York or metropolitan areas, like wearing a mask in those kind of settings is like really important, I think. But other than that, I feel like people can like, dim down on quarantining not totally ignore it but you know so still social distance but not you don't need to go to like the full extent you know what i mean like if you stay with your friend group yeah like matt you were saying when we were at the beach like two weeks ago you're like you look at the shore oh would you think there's a pandemic going on and that's what you said right yeah you said that meanwhile yeah. we're tackling each other in the water I wasn't tackling anyone in the water. Yeah, no, you were. You were, y- yes, you were definitely close to people if you were tackling people or not. All right, fine. I'm tackling not denying. People. I'm not denying that I haven't become more lenient. And actually, I'm, I, I've been talking to my parents about this, and I'm a little bit more worried that because we've gotten more lenient, we're kind of exposing ourselves. Sorry. But, but it's like that reality that you have to face. It's like, like Sandro said. You're not going to quarantine. You're not going to quarantine in your house until 2021. You have to. You have to get out of the house. But to, but to not call the coronavirus deadly, I think is a big, big. No, mistake. it's deadly. It's just. It's just. It's something we're going to have to deal with for years to come. It's going to become like the flu in 20 years, right? Well, yeah, but but herd herd immunity has to take place, and the vaccine has to take place. I, well, I, I we're, we're not getting a vaccine. We're going to have to just like. Just, I, I, my, my final point is that to call the coronavirus, I don't know, less deadly than the flu or, or less. It was imp- for, for a, a good amount of time. Or less important than the flu. I think it's a mistake because if, if not we, less important, 
I words. use words that I said. Don't don't say okay. that. Okay, less deadly, <laughs> less deadly than the flu. I think it, it used to be, but not not anymore. But that's why we're at this point in our country, where where the we have over like four million cases, one hundred fifty thousand deaths. By saying, by saying, oh, the flu is less deadly than the coronavirus. I mean, uh, the coronavirus is less deadly than the flu. That's why we we're here. That's why we're at this point with 150,000 deaths. I, I don't think that changes. That cases. doesn't change anything. People do things. People, after being quarantined for so long, are going to go out regardless of whether they, they feel that they're endangering themselves and others. Right. Yeah, I, I think, like I said, the biggest thing is just masks. Like, in, pub, in big public places. Yeah, big people like Eric is, yeah. Well, like, yeah, like, when you're, like, just like in a business, and, like, you just see, like, those... I don't know, those people who are like, it's my, it's my right not to wear a mask. It's like, okay, you do that and you, you know, jeopardize the lives of yourself and other people and that's where you're going to die, um, you know, in your pickup truck. Like, <laughs> it's just your life. Jesus. All right. Let's move on from this conversation. Uh, so the, the Jazz beat the Pelicans by two points. Uh, it was a fun game, though. Boo. It was yeah. a fun game. Uh, do you guys have anything else that you guys want to you guys want to discuss about? Um, well, you ha- you have topics. I-, I just got a text from my driving school teacher about uh, driving this weekend. What was he like? I'm quitting. Getting, my, getting my six hours in. Uh, I'm very excited about it. They so he's uh, not quitting. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't gotten to drive with him yet. I'm kind of. Uh, I'm very excited to do so too. So it's gonna be a. It's gonna be a good time. Um, you have to so. talk about reels. We, we oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's huge, actually. So oh, yes. uh, recently, uh, Wall Street Journal they uh, wrote a story uh, from Wednesday, yesterday. Instagram offers cash to lure TikTok stars to rival service. So Instagram and Facebook they are coming out with a a service, pretty much very similar to TikTok, called Reels, R E E L S, which is going to be coming out in the next couple weeks, and they're they're offering money to try to to get Charlie D'Amelio, uh, the biggest biggest star on the uh, TikTok Wait, did, platform. Did, did they name drop Charlie D'Amelio? Uh, no, but I'm pretty sure you can assume that it's Charlie D'Amelio. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't so. think you can. Uh, I don't think it's. I mean, I mean a ton she's the of big one. people. She, she was, it says TikTok average. stars. You're right. There's plenty of stars. But, I know, but you look yeah, at she, you look awkward, at. Yeah. So, this is very similar to what Mixer. So mix. So Twitch is a oh, yeah, streaming yeah. service for like gaming mixer uh well twitch is with is affiliated with amazon oh, mix yeah mixer mixer is affiliated they they opened it up to rival with microsoft yeah mm-hmm. and they they took the biggest twitch streamer at the time ninja who, uh, who played fortnite and offered him an, an absurd amount of money like an absurd like 30 deal, mil, 30, yeah, thirty mil or something like that. To to switch over and become the face of Mixer, and the only person who won from that was Ninja because Mixer yeah. <laughs> Mixer Mixer is now folding and is out of business because yeah. they gave what happened was they gave money to Ninja, mm-hmm. and expecting the fans to to like all like flock over when in reality the the Ninja fans were the only ones that flocked over. I, yeah, because. I, you can't. Sorry, but you can't. Um, 
you can't artificially grow like a community. You know what I mean? It needs to be organic. And like you just cherry picking like the best, whatever content creators isn't going to create a community. So I feel like you can't really force that upon, you know, a service. That's why like Mixer didn't succeed. And I feel like the article has said like something about a hundred thousand dollars or like, you know, hundred thousand dollars range. That's like not enough if they want big content creators. Cause they make like ton of money on sponsorships. Like, like on 16,000 or like for like sponsored posts, you mm-hmm. know? So a hundred thousand, hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars is not going to be enticing enough for someone to leave the whole entire platform, leave their fan base. Um, so they're probably going to need to offer millions if they want any like significant. And you know. I think the problem was with Mixer, the Ninja fans that came over to watch Ninja, they didn't stay for other Mixer streamers. They just mm-hmm. watched Ninja and then they went back. So yeah. like it was a very low rate of staying after like they didn't bring viewers they just like you said cherry picked them and then they left once their favorite streamer was off which is going to see it's going to be interesting to see what charlie d'amelia does like if she accepts the or how how this plays out well i think real one of the things that they're going to do since since it's going to be created by the content creators of facebook and instagram the they're going to use that to their advantage they're going to try to kind of create a pipeline between Instagram and reels because Instagram's already incredibly popular. You, you probably have every, every personality already on Instagram. And if they make it, if they make an easy transition, make it very easy access to go from Instagram to reels that might be able to, like we talk about like convenience, like people love convenience. They, they love to just click on something, be able to buy it, put it in their shopping bag, whatever. If that's the same type of thing with Instagram and Reels, I could totally see Reels being successful because if, if all you have to do is a click of a button to go from Instagram to Reels and they're kind of like connected together, wouldn't that just make it even easier? Because say yeah. Instagram restricts uh, TikTok from being able to, or say TikTok is not allowed to put their videos on Instagram anymore or TikTok creators are not allowed to put Instagram or put their videos on Instagram anymore. Wouldn't that hurt those TikTok creators? Uh, I feel like you can't do that, right? Isn't like freedom of speech? Uh, uh, well, if they kind of like, because TikTok's paying Instagram to put ads on their on their app, right? Oh, uh, oh, I don't know. I, are, I, you, I, I are you talking? Them. Are you talking putting TikTok ads on Instagram? Yeah, like Instagram doesn't have to accept I've the money that. that TikTok yeah. is is giving. I think it's more. It's more about like in in profiles of like famous people on TikTok, they can like just you could there's a button where you could tap and it'll go straight to their instagram oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. they could get rid of that and then it could be interesting if they but i don't know it's going to take a lot of people because what's going to make you stop like stop watching TikToks to go to some other service where no one's really you don't know yeah. anyone on there. well i don't i don't Oh, you go. So, no, I'm just, gonna, I'm just kind of confused. So, is Real like integrated into Instagram at the moment? I, I'm like pretty it, sure like Reels is, is going to be like a feature connected. on Instagram. Uh, I'm not sure yet because it, the app hasn't come out, but I'm pretty sure Reels is going to be in some way connected to Instagram and Facebook. But it's like a separate app, right? It's a separate app, but it has like a. I'm going to use the word pipeline between Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was going to say, do you think TikTok is one of those apps? Because I, I haven't used Twitch, so I wouldn't be able to like share from experience. But do you think if TikTok could, or if Instagram and Reels could get one TikTok star, 
would it be easier to move that whole platform rather than Twitch? Or do you think that the top TikTok stars, if they're not offered their price range, are still going to stay on TikTok? The problem, like, the problem is that Twitch along with TikTok are both like very established. Like mm-hmm. they have people who are going to tune into them every day, no matter who's, no matter who they're watching specifically. So one big person isn't going to take the whole audience over. Maybe they'll go watch a couple of the one big person's videos, but then they'll go back. Mm-hmm. And and then you have like a uh, a TikTok creator like. Evan Gamillion, Jada Gamillion, they're they're extremely popular on the app. So that, yes. Yeah, but that said, they're not on the same level as like a Charlie D'Amelio. So the Gamillions might not even be offered uh, cash to to move to Reels. So it's kind of asked like, why should I move to Reels if I already have a standing platform on TikTok? Yeah, only only like, like only thing that can really entice them is cash. Like I'm talking about like millions. Like a, like a big payout. Well, Instagram even, and Facebook, they have a ton of money. Well, I'm not no, saying Facebook yeah, didn't have a ton of money. But, but it, depends how, it depends how confident the people behind Facebook are confident about, you know, reels. Because if they're really confident, then they'll be willing to invest in the creators. But if they're not, you know, they're not going to be so motivated to do that. Well, I'm just, um, I'm like, just interested how they're going to differentiate themselves. Like, yeah, they, have, yeah. they have to go all in. They have to go, I think they have to go all in with their their investments or they just don't they like see how it goes from the start and they yeah. decide no or they decide yes we're putting money in because if they put enough money in it can work because they were they which, were you're good oh yeah which just which mixer ran out of that's it because instagram was successful with cherry picking you know stories from snapchat like that worked yeah, out really well that worked um, out fantastic but, like, but at the same time they didn't take um they didn't take like snapchat users you know, from Snapchat to Instagram, you know, people just use the feature on Instagram. You know what I mean? Well, they use um, both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They use both. And I think that's Instagram's goal. I think their goal isn't to take TikTok users, but just to increase like the user activity on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm sure the people running this operation aren't idiots. I'm sure they've, no, yeah, they've yeah. conducted focus groups and they've conducted surveys about the, the interest here or else they wouldn't make a, a rival platform just to lose money. So yeah. there must be some type of interest here and there must be some type of differentiation. But like musically, right? Musically was the TikTok before TikTok. Yeah. Uh, I think I think like musically like owns TikTok. Or like the people that started TikTok. Uh, people oh, started musically. musically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some something like that. They they rebranded. Um, yeah. I mean it's so, worked. They're pretty successful. I don't know, in a couple of weeks or maybe maybe at the end of the month, by the end of August. Uh, yeah, sometime in August, has said, I think we'll be able to test out Reels and see if it's if it's the real deal. Maybe I'll start putting my podcast content on Reels since I can't get any uh, success on TikTok. Yeah, blacklisted. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you guys have any, anything else you guys want to talk about? Um, no. All right, thank you guys again for listening, uh, Sanjo. As always, spitballing with Sandra. I hope that uh, this segment was a success. Uh, Noah, thanks again for coming on. Uh, Bruce, I want to thank you again for spending some time on the show with us. Uh, I hope you come on again. And uh, I think that's it. Thanks, everyone.